Thank you. Well, it's also very lovely for me to be back, and um, especially nice at the end of the year to see some very old friends here, as as well as many people who um, I am who I'm just meeting in the first, in, in, you know, some for the first time today, and some of you who did the last couple of days um, here on the practice days on the day long. Um, I wanted to talk today, oh, I had a hard time deciding what talk, uh, what topic I wanted to talk about today. I kept going, oh, I want to talk about this, and then I want to talk about that, and then I want to talk about this, then I want to talk about that. And I finally settled on just a theme that is one of my personal favorites. And um, that theme is the desire for enlightenment, the desire for liberation, and to speak about desire from this perspective of the desire for freedom. And I like this theme because it's a quite a, um, oh, it's quite a large topic and it's quite a large desire, isn't it? I mean, some people, when you make your little Christmas list, how many people put on the little Christmas list? Um, <laughs> Dear Santa, I want enlightenment, please. <laughs> I don't care what kind of a box you wrap it up in. <laughs> Um, when the Buddha was dying, and he was um, really in the last hours of his life, um, he was dying in a place called Kushinagar, and he was lying in a in a in a um, in a place between a few trees. And at that time, it was known that he was dying, and so he um, let Ananda tell the. The, the people in the area to spread the word that the Buddha was passing from this world. And in response to that knowledge, many people came to pay their last respects. And they came from the nearby villages, and the monks from the, the district all traveled as quickly as they could to see the Buddha before he passed away. And um, there was this sort of really, really long queue of people waiting to you know say goodbye to the Buddha. And finally, the queue ended, and everybody was quiet. And then one more wanderer came from a different sect. And he had, he had arrived a bit late, and the Buddha was already resting. And the um, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, um, asked Subhadda, the name of the, this, this wanderer, Subhadda, he said, please, um, the Lord is weary. Do not disturb the Tathagata. But from the background, the Buddha heard that one more person had arrived. And the Buddha asked Ananda, he said, to let Subhadda through, for whatever Subhadda asks me, he asks in quest of enlightenment and will not annoy me. And I was moved by this story because right to the last moment of his life, he was responding to this yearning for freedom, for this quest for enlightenment. One of my teachers, um, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, um, died a few years ago. And um, on his deathbed, um, there was a period of his of, of the last few um, weeks of his life where he had a brain tumor, where he would be quite um, confused, disoriented, and then total clarity, and then he would be quite disoriented again, and then total clarity. And um, um, some friends went to see him in the last weeks of his life, and um, he was in these alternating states caused by the brain tumor. And in one of his moments of clarity, he reached out of the bed and grabbed a friend's hand and said, practice, time is golden. Even in those last teachings of his life, the urge, the, um, the teaching was to practice, time is golden, not to waste this extraordinary opportunity that we have. And so this concept of desire desire for awakening, desire for enlightenment is an interesting one and one that is embedded in the Buddha Dharma teachings. And yet, how many people think of desire as being a positive Buddhist quality? 
Sometimes we think of desire as simply being the cause of suffering, and it tends to have a negative connotation in Buddhism. The term in Pali that has the negative connotation is tanha, and that is more the quality of thirst, of craving. And that's when tanha is translated as desire. It's translated in the context of desire is the cause of suffering. But there's another Pali term called chanda. And chanda is also translated as desire, but it's ethically neutral. It could be the desire for suitable conditions for practice. It could be the desire for the, um, the opportunity to do generous acts. It could be the desire to have a place to come to practice together. It could be the simple wish to do something, the simple wish to act. So chanda, when it's translated as desire, is the intention, which could be wholesome or unwholesome. It doesn't necessarily, the term chanda doesn't necessarily indicate that. And Many of the desires that we have to create the space that supports our practice, to um, make commitments that guide us in ethical speech and ethical conduct, and the very aspiration to realize the truth of things, to investigate the nature of mind, to realize a peaceful coexistence in life. These are forms of desire, of chanda. So although desire can sometimes seem to be the enemy in Buddhism, the problem with desire is not this basic will to act, this basic aspiration. The problem is in the grasping and the apparent distance that can sometimes be created between what I think I want and what I perceive myself as having. When desire arises but doesn't carry the weight of compulsive grasping, then we can use this quite powerful force of desire to deepen our practice and to open to things as they are. Desire for freedom can actually be cultivated, but without fixing ourselves to a particular something, I want this. If we want our enlightenment to come in a certain form, to look like a certain experience, to be compared to something we've heard about, then we're much more in the area of tanha. And yet there is still this underlying yearning and desire for freedom, which doesn't need to have the extra grasping of, I want it like this. The desire to be present embraces experience with a quality that's open and receptive, that allows us to investigate things. And this can be a wise desire that inclines the mind toward a deepening of our spiritual practice, towards what is wholesome rather than what is unwholesome. But the desire for liberation holds some risks. Because if that desire gets out of balance with wisdom, then the apparent gap between where I am now and where I want to be in my spiritual life can seem like an enormous chasm. Has anybody experienced desire arising this week? Of course, desire arises virtually every day. But sometimes I think desire in this month may be one of the, 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 the times to really see it um, uh, much more flagrantly. Um, in daily life situations, when desire arises, it's very often as the wish to get something that we do not yet have or the wish to get rid of something that we have and we don't like. But desire of movement towards something can also be a movement toward realizing simply what is already always present. A movement that requires no movement at all. Desire for liberation is not just about getting something or about losing something, but instead it can be understood as an inclination toward a freedom that is already always present so that we don't conceptualize 
the, the desire for liberation as to get an experience that is liberating or to get a state that will make us happy all the time. Instead, it's a resting in a presence without being drawn into those desires of getting and losing, of wanting and not wanting, any particular object that we can perceive, any particular state that we can experience. Very often our desires are just too narrow. They're just a little bit too trivial. So that resting in presence allows us to open to a quality of stillness and silence, of abiding with things as they are. Now, some people, um, when I was um, first playing with this concept in my practice of the desire for freedom, some um, more conservative Buddhists um, said, oh, no, 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 Shaila, don't mix this concept of desire with liberation. But I felt in my own practice and in my experience that I recognized that desire is actually a dangerous concept to play with. I mean, it's not a toy. And yet, as long as it arises in our lives, why not find a relationship to desire that is liberating and that leads us, guides us in a conscious way towards our aim and towards freedom? Investigating desire is not just something that we... We don't just investigate desire in order to abandon it although that may be the approach of abandoning desire towards all of the perhaps more trivial or simple or mundane sensual pleasures that we may have, like the desires for comfort or the desires to get whatever the new gadget or gadget is this year. But instead, it can be used as a skillful investigation, as a movement toward understanding. For many people... When we encounter something that is unfamiliar, perhaps an unfamiliar experience in the mind, um, there can be a reaction of fear. We might react with fear towards something that we may see a strong emotion within us, and we're not used to the strength of that emotion, and so we're a little afraid. It could also be that we open to a more profound state within our spiritual life or a deepening insight There can also be fear arise simply because it's unfamiliar. And so many people reach for routines and repeat patterns. And that repetition of routine, that force of habit, becomes a strategy to reduce the fear of what's unfamiliar and what's unknown. But routines are a weak defense against change. In this world, things simply change no matter how well-constructed our routines are. Um, um, I've been in New Mexico, and they have a very different recycling system. And came back, and the recycling system in Menlo Park seems to have changed from what it was last year. And there's all of these new... I mean, they, they they want them in different kinds of bins, and different things get mixed together. And... You know, I have to keep reading the little form to see how to do the recycling. I mean, something as simple as throwing away garbage requires a certain degree of attention. And that consciousness, of course, is a wonderful thing. And yet sometimes I get a little like, why do I have to pay so much attention to throwing away my garbage? And it made me remember um, when my grandmother... um, um, most of her life, they didn't have recycling. And they only had this recycling system in the last few years of her life. And and so when she would start to throw out the garbage, it was truly an anxiety-producing experience. I mean, it was, it was just unbelievably tension-producing for her because their garbage system had a certain kind of bag that things had to be in. And if it was in a regular garbage bag, it wouldn't be taken. And the recycling had to be separated in a certain way, and it had to be laid out on the street in a certain way. And it just... I mean, it was unbelievable the pain that it caused her. And it wasn't that it was such a difficult thing to do. It was asking her 
to alter a pattern that had been ingrained for over 80 years. And that kind of change of pattern is not an easy thing for many of us to do. But there are ways of approaching the unfamiliar, to approach uncertainty, to approach change, that are other ways rather than just reinforcing and dwelling in familiar patterns of recreating the conditions that we recognize so well. We can cultivate instead the ability to be at ease with change. And no matter how well-structured our routine is, Our routine cannot be relied upon. Something at some time will intervene into our carefully laid plans and our precisely defined routines and mess it all up. When I was living with Poonjaji in India, we would sometimes get things to work in the in the in the house, you know, in the in the satsang hall, because he was seeing hundreds of people every day, and it was it was a, quite a lot cooking for them and cleaning for them, and we just sort of certain kind of like get a schedule that worked. Different people would be taking different responsibilities. It seemed like we could never get it to work two days in a row, because on the third day in the row, on the row, when we thought we had like gotten the system to work, he would just totally change it for no reason at all. Well, I think maybe perhaps the reason was was to keep that flow, to keep us having to respond, to not fixate, even when we've gotten something to work. And very often we've organized our lives in such a way that they work. But then what happens when something changes? Can we instead cultivate, or in addition, cultivate a mind that is so flexible that it doesn't just rely upon the routines? to sustain an easeful and peaceful relationship with change. When there's an openness to the possibility of freeing the mind rather than controlling the situation, then the dynamics of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of you and me, of before and after, of past and future, all of those dualities take on much less significance and importance because we begin simply to embrace the unknown aspects of experience with openness and interest. In those moments when we're not bound by the familiar patterns and beliefs we have of how we arise and interact in this world, we can recognize something else something utterly unfamiliar. It's only in the absence of those patterns that we might see something that within the pattern we don't even recognize. This is the power of possibility, just the power to open to something outside of what's familiar, outside of what's known, and to allow the heart to continue to remain open to possibility rather than to condense or to try and control and contain experience. One of Poonjaji's favorite stories had to do with a donkey and a lion. And... um, Some of you may know this donkey-lion story, but it's also one of my favorite stories, and so I'd like to share it with you again. Um, And he told me this story over and over and over and over and over and over again. I don't know how many times he told it to me, Um, but I just loved hearing about the donkey and the lion. Now, there was a donkey and there was a lion. Now, what happened is that um, a lion with her cub was down by the riverbank drinking some water. And a hunter came by and saw the lion and wanted to make the kill. And he did. He killed the lion and he dragged away the carcass of the lion. But the hunter had no um, use for the little cub. And so he just left the cub by the riverbank. And a short time later, a team of donkeys... Um, led by the um, Dobiwala, the, the, the washerman, um, who was 
carrying the, the laundry down to the river to wash the clothes in the river, saw this little darling little lion cub, this little kitten. And he felt bad for the lion cub. He saw the blood. He assumed that, um, a, um, that the mother had been killed. And so he took the cub in and he fed it and he raised this cub along with his donkeys. And so the cub grew up and would play with the donkeys. And the cub, the lion, learned to, um, to graze grass along with the donkeys. And it learned to, when it got bigger and stronger, um, the dobiwala, the washerman, would load the dirty laundry on the back of the lion just as he would upon the, 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 um, the donkeys. And they would move as a team and as a herd to, um, to the river. And then after the, the clothes had dried in the afternoon, he would load up the clean clothes on the backs of the, the lion and the donkey team and carry it back into the village. And so each day they would go to work um, like that. And then one day, the, um, they had all gone to the river, and the, the, the Dobiwala was washing the clothes in the river. And another lion comes by and is peeking through the grass because it wanted to get a drink at the river. And it sees this very strange sight because it sees a lion grazing grass along with the donkeys. And it gets very confused because for a lion, a donkey is food. So... This lion is so confused, it decides it's not really so thirsty, and it really isn't quite so hungry to eat one of the donkeys either. It's got to find out why this lion is grazing grass along with the donkeys. And so it pounces towards the herd of donkey, donkeys and lions that are, um, that are grazing grass and snatches a hold of the scruff of the neck of the lion. And, and the, the little lion... The, little, the, the young lion says, don't eat me, don't eat me, please let me go back to my friends. Um, and the lion asks, why are you grazing grass with the donkeys? You're a lion. No, I'm not a lion. Don't confuse me. I'm just a simple donkey. Please let me go back to my herd in peace. And this young lion had believed that it was a donkey. And so the, the, the older lion, unable to convince it that it's not a donkey, drags it to the river and puts its face towards the water so that it can see side by side their reflections. And then as it sees its reflection in the water, you know, it roars its lion's roar and it realizes its true nature. Sometimes we pick up notions of who we think we are from many conditions around us and we don't realize what the truth of our nature is until that possibility is shown to us, is revealed to us, until we see our true face. And it's that yearning for freedom, that desire for liberation that can help us to cross the gap between what we know, meaning what we believe, what we think ourselves to be, and the possibility that is beyond what's known, the unknown, the possibility of realizing something deeper than all of our roles, all of our responsibilities, all of the ways that we've defined who we are in this world. We can let go of the habits that separate us, that define us. We can let go of the stories of who we take ourselves to be and embrace a possibility of wakefulness and presence that goes beyond all the limitations of the stories of our lives. It's this keen interest in awakening that helps us embrace the present moment without then constructing narrow definitions of who I am manifesting as now, who I will become, how I will use this moment. Now, when we begin a meditation practice, very few people... um, when they start to look into their minds, actually like what they find. Every now and then, we'll sit and observe the thoughts arising and passing in our minds um, with some equanimity. But very often, we're not so keen on what we, what we experience. I mean, sometimes our thoughts, 
are a little bit nastier than we would like them to be. They're a little bit more trivial. Sometimes they're just a little bit more boring. Sometimes we repeat the same thought again and again and again, and we think, God, if somebody was telling me that story that many times, (laughs) I would have left. And yet we tell ourselves the same story again and again. We plan the same experience again and again. Often we resist the simple painfulness of seeing the patterns that we sustain within our mind because we don't want to admit to how painful that negativity is or that fear is or that anxiety is or simply how painful that repetition is. Sometimes what's painful is just to admit that we don't have control over the proliferations of our thoughts. But when we finally turn and look into the minds, when we face our patterns and we understand how it is that we hold our experience, we begin to perceive how we cling, how we relate to experiences through a mind that grasps, through a self that forms itself by grasping, by holding, by clinging, by attachment. And we begin to realize, oh, perhaps I do have some courage, perhaps that courage of a lion, to feel the pain of the attachment. Not the courage to smash the attachment, the courage to bear the pain of the pattern, the pain of the clinging. And by feeling the pain of the clinging, we begin to open to the possibility of unraveling it because we're not rejecting it out of aversion. Oh, I hate that. I want to get rid of that pattern. That doesn't actually work. That's another form of clinging. We first need to be able to have the strength within us to bear the pain of our patterns and allow them to simply unravel and be released. When we experience clearly the pain of clinging, letting go becomes easy. Often it's difficult to let go because we haven't felt the pain of it. We misperceive grasping as pleasure rather than as pain. And the illustration is is that if you're holding a hot coal, it's very easy to let go because you feel the pain of it. This possibility for freedom is that place of, of possibility that we hold within our hearts that gives us the courage and the strength to feel what's painful as what's painful. This possibility keeps us attentive to our experience, keeps us investigating, even when our habit may be to go to the refrigerator or to turn on the television or to get a drink or to go out and have a smoke or whatever our thing might be. Very often our pattern is to avoid the painful to distract ourselves from the painful. And it takes some courage of heart to instead turn and open to what is painful. But if we sense that there's a true possibility of living without dwelling in our repeated patterns, that there becomes this kind of interest and commitment to live our lives in a free way, to live an enlightened life. And we nurture this possibility. We give it the space in our lives to mature, to develop. We give time every day to silence and stillness. We give some steadiness to our meditation practice. We come to events such as this. We carve out time in our lives for retreat practice. We reserve some of our resources, whether that be time or money, in order to develop our spiritual life. This possibility is so essential because it's a crack. It's a crack in conditioned experience. You might find it as the gap between two breaths, that quiet place, that moment of stillness. It might be the space between two thoughts after one thought has arisen and passed, but the next thought has not yet arisen when we're not grasping the past thought and we're not yet grasping the next thought. There's a moment between that is free of grasping, free of identification, free of that force of of subject-object 
processes where we contain and limit who it is we think we are. That space, those gaps, those spaces between what's known and what's known, those spaces of the unfamiliar, is an intriguing space for attention to rest. And it's a split second where investigation into that space opens the sense of profound possibility. But all too often our attention misses those gaps. It misses those spaces because we move so quickly from one breath to the next, from one desire to the next, from one activity to the next, from one goal to the next, from one thought to the next. And we miss the awareness of the spaces, the silences, the stillness, the gaps between things. And yet, there is also a moment that every one of you, every meditator, has had a moment of waking up where we realize that we're lost in thought. And as we recognize, oh, I'm lost in thought, often that thought dissolves. There's that split second of knowing, of waking up. And in that split second, as the thought dissolves, there's this moment of freedom There's this moment of ease. And we have the choice to begin again, to reconnect, to open to that space, to explore. A whole range of possibilities opens of whether and how to apply the attention because we've interrupted the pattern. We're not just caught in one thought, habitually moving to the next thought. That split second when we know that we're lost in thought is one of the critical moments in any meditation. What do we do in that moment? Do we judge ourselves for having been thinking? Do we immediately grasp the breath or a more skillful object because we're afraid we'll just get seduced into thoughts? Or can we, in that split second, have just a moment of interest, a moment of investigation to see how it is that that pattern of identifying with thoughts arises in the mind? How it is we get seduced into thoughts? What that force is about? It doesn't matter if those thoughts if those, those, those moments are brief, very brief, or if they're extended, if we can rest within them or if we just recognize them as a passing glance and then move back to a clearer object such as the breath. In that moment of waking up, we have possibility, we have choice. And there is the possibility of simply resting in that moment of waking up, of resting in alertness, in that the wakefulness, in that crack between thoughts, in that space. Um, One of the Dzogchen instructions is to simply rest, to be at ease, to rest our weary minds. Um, Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche, um, my um, Tibetan Lama, said, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in an infinite ocean of samsara. Inclining the mind toward awakening, cultivating this desire for liberation, doesn't mean that we are forcing enlightenment to happen. The image is much more of that of a flower. We don't rip its petals open. We simply allow it to unfold, but we are present and awake to experience that unfolding, to marvel with awesome wonder and faith at that process of unfolding. In practice, we cultivate many conditions to try to make enlightenment a bit more likely. We cultivate concentration, we cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate um, effort and discipline and energy and um, faith and mindfulness, you know, all of those good qualities. 
Um, there are many lists of good things to cultivate. And that, that cultivation process is quite important. We cultivate conditions in our practice, like the discipline of sitting every day, of going out into nature, of taking um, spacious walks, of bringing ourselves back in activity, of when we're driving in the freeway, knowing that we're driving. All of the little tools, techniques, gimmicks, disciplines, and things help to support the creation of conditions that, as one... um, teacher said, enlightenment is an accident, but meditation makes you more accident prone. (laughs) There's nothing, though, that we can do to guarantee enlightenment. I was just reading an advertisement for an enlightenment intensive weekend. Has anybody done those enlightenment intensives? You have? I mean, it didn't quite say we guarantee you'll be enlightened by the end of this weekend, but the whole tone of the testimonials was practically a guarantee. I don't think enlightenment can be guarantee,d particularly not maybe in a in a three day week three day program, but. But certainly, um, we can do something to create the conditions, and we can also open to the possibility that is beyond conditions. But this question, freedom, enlightenment, ease, freedom, it begs an, an opposing kind of question, which is, what do we want to be free from? What do you want to be free from? That's a question. What do you want to be free from? Suffering, okay, that's all encompassing. Anything more specific? <laughs> delusion? Illusion, yes, illusion. Illusion, delusion, suffering. What do you want to be free from? Fear? Judgment, clinging, yeah, yeah. Pressure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Suffering has many forms. I mean, the whole umbrella category, anxiety, fear, etc., are all different ways that we create suffering. So we could just say suffering, or we could also sense that it takes for different times and different characters, different forms that we experience the pain of that in. Basically, though, free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Now, the desire for happiness is kind of like on one side and suffering is on the other, right? We don't want to suffer, we want to be happy. And this desire for happiness drives much of our activity and our engagements in the world. But the problem isn't the desire for happiness. That's actually quite a a normal and wonderful thing to be happy. The problem is that most people misunderstand it and place their happiness look for happiness in the wrong places. They don't look for happiness in an ultimate ending of the causes of suffering, but instead look for happiness through gain, accomplishment, praise, and all of those those social structures that are just a little bit too fragile and too changeful to, um, to rest upon. Sayadaw Upandita, the Burmese um, teacher, said, Desire is insatiable. As soon as we get something, we find it is not as satisfying as we thought it would be, and we try something else. It is the nature of life, like trying to scoop up water in a butterfly net. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Now, Sometimes we think we want many things and we think we'll be happy if we get them. And when you get something, look and experience that joy of receiving. There is a great joy of receiving. Sometimes, though, we think that the happiness comes from getting what we had wanted. But consider Does the happiness come from getting what you wanted? Or does the happiness come from the ending of the desire? The next time you get something that you want, investigate this. Because there's the possibility of finding happiness in the experience of desirelessness, 
of the letting go of the desire. And that letting go can happen because it was satisfied, which is one way of freeing ourselves of that desire. But it can equally come by letting go of the desire without getting what we want. And then we find a way to be happy that is not dependent upon the particular conditions of the world of whether we do get what we want or we don't get what we want. Srini Sargadatta Maharaj, the Indian saint, said, Desires are just waves in the mind. You know a wave when you see one. A desire is just a thing among many. I feel no urge to satisfy it. No action needs to be taken on it. Freedom from desire means this. The compulsion to satisfy is absent. I think I'll end there. Let's just sit for a couple of moments and then we may have a little discussion. Any comments, questions, discussion? Uh, for myself, I found uh, uh, at, a, at a phase when I started becoming aware of my thoughts and my judgment and not being able to stop them, and then having to sort of go into some breathing uh, meditation to quiet my mind. At the early stage of being able to catch that in a more um, healthy way for myself was to uh, to have compassion for myself in the moment. Is to I would say something. I think I learned it in a Dharma talk here. I would say uh, I care a lot about myself, mm-hmm. and uh, and gradually over months of doing that, uh, that wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Just much more soft. Yeah. catching the arising of the judgment or the yeah. criticism of myself and I'm just letting it go. Yeah, it's a, lovely, it's a lovely practice. And it's a very skillful use of, of, of reflection and thought. Because sometimes our, our, our thoughts are quite habitual and the judgment creeps in just out of habit. And when we've made a decision that we don't want to sustain a habit, we can interrupt that pattern by... Um, perhaps having compassion, having a thought of loving kindness, and in a way replacing the negative pattern with a positive one. It's very skillful. That's great. It's very interesting. 
I mean, and, and I mean, I, I I do a lot of interviews with people too, uh, and so I, I see how people judge their practice, you know, because they come in and they describe their practice, what works, what doesn't work, and very often one of the important roles that a teacher um, provides for community, and and I, I trust many of you um, work with Gill in this, is very often we assess our practice in different ways. Unfortunately, many people misassess their practice. They use the wrong signposts. And some of the very common signposts that people um, um, see and think it means that it works is uh, like um, comfort, feels good, I can sit longer with less agitation, um, uh, a feeling of, op- of warmth and openness. People doing metta often look for signs of the open heart feeling and all of that stuff. Um, there's, the Buddha gave a very clear signpost. Well, actually, there's two forms one can see it in. One can see it in more suffering or less suffering, more clinging or less clinging. And so if we're using comfort and we're increasing clinging, even though the meditation feels more comfortable, more easeful, but there's actually greater clinging and less ease, there's, let, there's more reactivity if one sits in another posture and is less comfortable. There's more, more increase to aversion. It's not working. But the, the habit of mind is always to keep looking for that. Sometimes we can feel the bliss of concentration. We can feel the rapture and we think, oh, it's really working. Well, is it really working or does it mean that we're having a particular experience? If through that experience we're increasing attachment, from the Buddhist perspective, it's not working. Yet it is developing concentration. And so at different times in our practice, we'll be developing different factors. And so we'll assess slightly differently. Like we'll have a certain set of things if we want to be developing concentration, a certain set of things if we want to be developing um, um, joy states of mind. Sometimes we need the factors of happiness. We need the factors of sukha, of, 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 of joy, to lift up a mind that is a little bit down. And so there are times when we may take very temporary kinds of criteria to develop a certain factor, we'll see certain signs of increase. But generally, there's two to look for. More suffering or less suffering, um, more clinging or less clinging. That's all. And then it keeps it really simple. And it's amazing how hard that is to do for ourselves. I, I had practiced for a long time, and then I was doing this three-month retreat, and I went in to Sharon, and I was saying, this is not working, this is horrible, this is happening and this is happening. And it was just that I was experiencing a lot of unpleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences in the body, unpleasant experiences in the mind. And so I was reporting these unpleasant experiences, and I wanted to change my practice, I wanted to do something different, I wanted anything but what I was having. And But she reoriented the whole discussion because she said, it's okay, it's actually working fine, because I was mindful of it. It was just that I was mindful of the unpleasantness. But actually, from the perspective of developing mindfulness, pleasantness and unpleasantness make no difference whatsoever. So sometimes the teacher is really helpful for that because it's very difficult to not get caught in the specifics that we want. But generally... Look in the long run, suffering, the end of suffering, and um, am I grasping or not grasping? And then within that, at different times in our practice, we'll focus on different narrower aims. And that's more for the play. You know, it's more for sensing, okay, I really sense that my concentration um, factor is very low. I get distracted very easily, so I'm going to develop concentration. Or you might sense, well, I have concentration, but sometimes the insight doesn't arise very much. I don't really understand the nature of things. And so you concentrate on doing um, reflective practices, on investigative techniques, of bringing in a lot more to see aspects of the things. And so you strengthen the investigation factor. And at different times over the course of your practice, you'll focus on different things. Is this that address it? Please, last one. I wonder if you could say a few words about sexual desire, because it seems to be sometimes a good thing and sometimes not such a good thing, and sometimes not having it is not a great thing either. I wonder when you're talking about desire, how to 
Um, the skillfulness. Um, the skillfulness would depend not so much upon the arising of desire, but whether there was a compulsion to satisfy. So different desires will arise, um, and if we are um, compelled into satisfying that desire, it doesn't matter if it's a sexual desire, or if it's a desire for a glass of wine, or if it's a desire for um, the newest gadget, or the desire to be approved of, or the desire to be loved, or the desire to be seen and heard. Sometimes they seem like they're very um, connecting desires. They're very social desires. They're very normal desires. And they are very normal desires. The question in practice is, do we have choice? Or are we compelled by our desire? Are we the slave of our desires? So desires can arise in the mind or the body. Um, They can arise and pass. And the question is, what is our relationship to that desire? Does it take us over? Does it cause us to act in ways that we don't choose to act? Many times desire, um, sexual desire may arise and it may occur in a social context that is appropriate. Or it may arise in a social context that will only lead to harm and to suffering. And so it's really essential that um, we be able to have enough space around the arising of desires that we can choose wisely what desires to act on. It's not that desire arising in the mind is bad. And it really doesn't matter. Sometimes there really is a desire. I really want an ice cream chocolate or something. Well, it's not that's not like evil. There's like nothing wrong with that. But sometimes in the you know, like if it's five o'clock in the morning, it may not be the most appropriate time to have an it you know, it just depends. Um, so that we need to have a little bit of space. Sexual desire can be sometimes very compelling and very strong. And so it can be um, one of the more difficult desires to work with. But the principle is very much the same. Um, sometimes people undertake commitments of celibacy for periods of time simply in order to work with the desire. And the easiest part of the commitment is not to engage in, in actual sexual acts. The, the real commitment, the real practice of celibacy is the celibacy of the mind, to relate to the desire without fueling the fantasy with even one more thought. And so when people undertake a couple, say, say, say one undertakes a year or two of, of, of celibacy, almost all of the practice is the desire rises, somebody very attractive walks by, does it end with the appreciation of the attraction and that moment, or does it does it go with one more thought and then one more thought and then one more thought and a, you know all of the various things that perpetuate the desire into uh, some kind of action and manifestation. So it's a it's a fun it's an it's a fun thing to play with actually to see what is our relationship to strong desires. And then if we have a spacious relationship to desire, then, and we sense the, the, the emptiness of things, we can make those, desire, those choices out of wisdom, not out of compulsion. <laughs>